you turn to John chapter 10, sorry, John 11. John 11, verse 1. We'll be reading down to verse 44. John 11, 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when he heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Now you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Remarkable passage. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, you are the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in you will never die. We thank you for this promise. Help us to understand this even better through the passage this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm torn between John chapter 9 and John chapter 11 as my absolute favorite passages in the Gospel of John. Chapter 11 it's, it's just embedded with so much tension. But there's a lot of difficult tensions in the passage. And tensions are things that we normally try to avoid, understandably, right? We don't like tension in our lives, whether it's a tension from a, a difficult conversation or tension from a, a hostile relationship in a family. We might not even like the tension that we experience when we're watching a, a very suspenseful movie. Right, but tension... Essentially, it's not a good thing. And John chapter 11 is full of tension. Now, most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the story uh, of the raising of Lazarus, right? And for those of you who are not familiar, well, now you know. I've read, I just read that story to you. You know the ending. You know the outcome. Now, knowing the ending can be sort of unhelpful in trying to read through the passage, and here's why. Because when you know the ending of the passage, when you know the, the ending to the story, well then, you don't have to wrestle with the difficult tensions of the passage. You already know how it ends. In fact, you might even miss the tensions that are in the passage. And so, I'm going to do you a favor this morning. I'm going to walk you through the difficult tensions in the passage. And there's at least two difficult tensions that are in the passage. And so, we're going to walk through the first one, then go through the second one, and then see how it's all resolved at the end. So last week, we finished John chapter 10, walked through the last half of John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42, and Jesus is here talking about his oneness with the Father, that he is united with the Father, that they are essentially one, right? And I mentioned last week that this oneness means between the God the Father and God the Son, it means that they are both united for the same common purpose, and that is the glorification of God through the salvation of man. And in order for God, for Jesus to accomplish this, well, that he must be one with the Father. That is, that he must have the same divinity as the Father. And we talked about uh, some of those attributes of God, that he is omniscient, that he is all-knowing, that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere present, and also that he is omnipotent, that God is all-powerful. And for Jesus to say that he is one with the Father, that he is affirming that he is all those things perfectly at the same time. And it's his omnipotence that I want to spend a little bit of time focusing on. 
Because Jesus, and we see this through the Gospel of John, the, the lame can walk, the blind can see. Jesus feeds thousands upon thousands of people using five loaves of bread and two fish, right? He certainly can do anything. He is omnipotent. Now, here is a message that he receives. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lazarus. Now, he wasn't just ill, right? He was gravely, he must have been gravely ill to have to send somebody to Jesus who was a considerable, a significant distance apart from Lazarus. It took, would have taken at least a couple days to get to him, to Jesus, with a message, Lazarus, oh, he whom you love is gravely ill. Right? You're not going to send somebody to Jesus just because somebody has a, a, the sniffles, right? Lazarus was at the point of death. And Jesus, well, Jesus is God. Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus can do anything. But he was very far. He wasn't close to Lazarus. He was nowhere near to Lazarus. But does proximity matter? Does he have to be near to Lazarus in order to heal him? Well, when we saw John chapter 9, in the healing of the man born blind, what does Jesus do? He makes mud, and he anoints the man's eyes. He says, go and wash. And he washed, and he came back seeing. Whereas in that case, Jesus anointed the man, right? He placed his hands on him, and then he was healed. Right, so in that sense, Jesus was close to the person to be able to touch him and to heal him. Is that what Jesus needed to do with Lazarus? Did he have to be that close to touch him? No, I don't think so, right? When you've seen examples of this, like for an example is John chapter 5, where in the healing of the, of the lame man who was at the pool of Bethesda, who says to Jesus, I have no one, I, I, I can't be healed because I have no one to bring me into the pool. And Jesus doesn't bring him into the pool. He doesn't even touch him. He just says, get up and walk. Take up your bed and walk. And he, what does he do? He gets up and he walks. Instantly, he is healed. Now, in this case, Jesus is close to the man, but he doesn't touch him like he did the blind man. But again, does proximity matter? Does Jesus have to be near the person? I mean, if he's omnipotent, maybe that omnipotence is restricted by his proximity or his closeness to an individual, physical, his physical presence. But then you think back to John chapter 4 and the healing of the official son. It says that the official, when this man heard that Jesus, back in John chapter 4, verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus come from, from Judea to, to uh, Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come in down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down He's pleading him to come with him. Come back home with me before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And then later you, he realizes that the moment that his son was recovering was the same moment that Jesus said, go, your son will live. So proximity, right, doesn't matter. Jesus can be far away from the person. All he has to do is just speak a word and the person is instantly healed. So then what builds this first tension also is when you consider, so Jesus is omnipotent, right? He can do anything. He doesn't have to be close to Lazarus in order to heal him. He could just simply say a word and Lazarus would be healed. Now what builds this tension even more is when you consider Jesus' love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. 
How does the, how does, what does the message say? Lord, he whom you love is ill. Notice what it doesn't say. Lord, my brother is ill. Lord, your friend is ill. Lord, Lazarus is ill. No, he says, the message says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. What is she doing? She's appealing to his affection. She's imploring him to do something. He whom you love is ill. And if there's any doubt about Jesus' love for Lazarus, in verse 5, the author, John, says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So even the author knew that Jesus had this special love for these siblings. He loved them, and they knew it. These sisters knew it, that, that Jesus loved Lazarus in this special way. And let me just take a brief aside for a moment. Isn't it astounding? Isn't it just remarkable that the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who is omnipotent, will not only come down to us, he would condescend to us, take on humanity, take on flesh, and live like one of us, and also make friends. I mean, this is Jesus, who had perfect fellowship with the Trinity in heaven, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Right? He wasn't aching or starving for friendships, for these relationships. He had it already in the Trinity. And yet he comes and lives like one of us. And what does he do? He befriends people. He calls 12 disciples to follow him. And then he develops this, this special bond with these three siblings. And Jesus also calls us his friends that we are his friends. And there's this friendship with Jesus Christ that enables us, that, that frees us to develop close friendships and relationships with one another. One, of the, one way or one passage that describes just a wonderful kind of friendship is in Psalm 18.1. As soon as he has finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Do you have those kind of close-knit relationships in your life? Right? And the church is a perfect context to do that. It's not to say that, you, that everybody in here needs to be, to be the best friends, right? And maybe you have those close-knit relationships in your life, somebody that you would describe as, some, as, as you, you, that you would say you love them as your own soul, this close-knitness. But the friendship of Christ that we have, right, that frees us, that enables us, that, that allows us to open ourselves up and to be proactive and intentional and pursue one another in developing these kinds of friendships. And if you don't desire a close friendship like that, if you don't care for it, then I would question if you have really understood the love of Christ for you. The Lord has made us for friendships, not just acquaintances, but to, for deep, meaningful relationships. And union with Christ frees us to do that, to pursue that. So pursue those kinds of relationships with one another. 
But then back to this attention in the passage. So Jesus loved Lazarus. There's no doubt about that. He had a special love. You could probably say that his soul was knit to the soul of Lazarus. So then if Jesus loved Lazarus that much, and Jesus is omnipotent, right? He can do anything. So then the question is, if Jesus is omnipotent and he, and he loved Lazarus, then why did Jesus wait where he was for two days longer? That's what it says. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus and Mary. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why would you do that? Right, if we found out that a, a, a loved one was gravely ill, we would try to rush and see them right away. And Jesus loved Lazarus, and instead of going to him immediately, right away, it says, it says that he stayed where he was for two days longer. How does that make any sense? It doesn't. But that's the first tension we have to wrestle with. That's the question we have to answer. Because if we don't answer that question, if we don't understand the tension and try to wrestle with it, like Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, if we don't wrestle with it and try to find out what the answer is, then we lose out on the significance of the passage. And that's the truth of the matter, that Jesus stayed where he was for two days longer. But before we can resolve this tension, there's another tension in the passage that might even be harder to accept than this first one. So verse, where am I? Verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Now you're going there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. What Jesus is getting at here is that just as the rising sun brings in a new day and also with it a new day of work. So Jesus says, as long as there is light in the world, as long as he is the light and he is in the world, then it's time for work. It's time to be about the Father's business. There's no time to waste. There's no time to spare. And part of that work means going to go see Lazarus. Even though they all know that danger may lie ahead. right? Because back in John chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, so that the Jews were angry with Jesus, that they were ready to stone him, but Jesus escaped. And so now Bethany is only two miles away from Jerusalem, and, and there are certainly Jews there who are, have come to console Martha and Mary. And so Jesus is heading in the direction of danger, and the disciples recognize this, specifically Thomas. But here's the encouraging thing about light. When Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Your life can be in, in absolute darkness, but as long as the Lord is with you, you still have light. 
that you're, you're never lost. And Jesus knows, even though there's danger ahead, he knows that this isn't going to be the end because he knows this isn't the time of his crucifixion. And that's not going to happen any moment sooner. And so he's unafraid of the danger. He has no, in fact, there, there is no danger to be afraid of. But the disciples don't know this yet. They don't understand it. They think that he's coming, he's going to his death. And so, and in omniscience, Jesus knows that Lazarus has died at this point. And then we have Thomas's ironic statement, the zealous Thomas. Let us also go with him that we may die with him. It's, it's ride or die for Thomas. And Thomas is that one individual that wants to do something that, is, that nobody else wants to do. There's always that one person. Thomas says, let's go with him that we may die with him. And everybody else is probably like, yeah, I don't want to lose my life. Well, but I guess since you're going, I guess I'll go too. But it's an ironic statement because right here, there, he's, he's ready to die with Jesus. But when it comes to his last hours, well, where's Thomas? Where are the other disciples? When the shepherd is struck, the sheep scatter. And not only is it ironic, but it's actually, it's, it's a profound statement. He has no idea what he's saying. <laughs> but it actually looks forward to something wonderful. Because Romans 6 Romans 6 says that to be united with Christ is to be united with him in his death. That if anyone would desire to see the kingdom of heaven, then he must be willing to say, let me go also with Jesus so that I may die with him. Because nothing short of the death of yourself is required if you will ever see the kingdom of heaven. If you will see life, but before you are risen again with Jesus Christ, well, then you must also follow him in his death. And only in following him in his death and then being raised with Jesus Christ to new life through faith in him are you then forgiven of your sins, your sins against God and the judgment that those sins deserve. And so it requires a person to follow Jesus, following in his death, death to your old self, and then raised to new life in Jesus Christ where you are no longer enslaved to sin, where you are no longer have any desire or you, there's a hatred now an abhorrence towards sin. And so, and we do this, right? This happens by faith. And it is faith that Jesus aims to impart to his disciples. And this is where we get the second tension of the passage. Jesus, it says in the passage, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So Jesus is glad that he was not there to heal Lazarus. Jesus was glad that he did not speak a word to heal Lazarus in time before his illness took his life. It's not that he was glad that he died, but he was glad that he was not there in time to heal him before he died. Now, why in the world is that something to be glad about? And Jesus says it is so that his disciples would believe in him. But is their faith really all that important to let somebody you love die? Does their faith really matter all that much to let the sickness take its course and lead to death? So Jesus 
waited two days longer instead of going immediately to, to heal Lazarus. He says that he was glad that he was not there in time to heal Lazarus. So then the overarching tension that encompasses the two tensions in this passage is that Jesus had allowed Lazarus to die when he had the power to prevent that from happening. And if we can't struggle our way to understand that tension and, and, and find the answer, then we miss out on the significance of this passage. So then having now drawn out these difficult tensions in the passage, we're now ready to see its resolution, but not before some smaller, a few smaller tensions. So verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And I don't think that's intended to be a rebuke, in part because she addresses him as Lord. But then she also, I think, shows a confidence in Jesus' oneness with the Father because she says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. I don't think it's a rebuke. I think it's just a matter. I just think it's just a, a statement. Lord, if you had been here sooner, my brother would still be alive today. And I don't know how Jesus would have perceived that, but just thinking about it, trying to put myself in his shoes, that would have been <laughs> like a dagger to the heart. Jesus, you, you could have done something. Instead, you didn't. It's not only Martha, but Mary as well. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It's just another stab at the heart. If you had been here sooner, my brother would not have died. And it's not just Mary and Martha, but it's also the crowds as well. In verse 37, the crowds, it says, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They know about the blind man, that Jesus restored his sight. And so this is the question of the hour. Could not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? And because we know that Jesus is one with the Father, he is omnipotent, we know that the answer is yes. He certainly could have kept this man from dying. And it's not that Jesus is apathetic towards the whole tragedy. Right? It tells us that Jesus wept. He was saddened by it, but it also tells us that he was deeply moved in his spirit. Now, some of you, depending on the Bible you have, there's a footnote there, and at the bottom it says agitated. And I think that's the right interpretation. Jesus was agitated. He was angry. Not angry at the tragedy, but angry with death. Because see, death is the ultimate evil. Death is never a good thing. Death was never a plan. That was never something that God intended from the very beginning. 
death is a sign of Satan's reign upon the earth. Death is never intended to be a good thing. Sin, death is a curse of sin. Death is, is our curse. So Jesus is angry with death, that death took the life of somebody he loved so dearly. And then, listen to Jesus' prayer to the Father. It says, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Notice how that prayer, and this whole, this bears upon the, the significance of the passage. He begins that prayer by saying, Father. We've known, if you've been following along with the Gospel of John, you know that this isn't something new, where Jesus identifies God as his Father, and he himself as the Son of God this incredible, this unique relationship that he enjoys with God the Father. But this is the first time up to this point in the Gospel of John where Jesus actually lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays and he says, Father. He addresses the holy God as Father. And it appears that Jesus had made a request to the Father. He says, I thank you that you have heard me. So at some point, Jesus had made a prayer request to the Father. And he acknowledges that the Father has heard him. He says, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. That they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is addressing God as Father in the midst of all these people, especially his disciples. He wants them to hear that he's addressing God as his Father. He wants them to know that he enjoys this unique relationship, this oneness with God the Father. And that the Father has has heard his request, and not only heard it, but granted that request. And so what is the answer to that request? Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an order. Or as I think the KG verse says, behold, he stinketh. For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, here's the answer to the prayer that he made to God. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. That was Jesus' prayer to the Father, that he would raise Lazarus back to life. And the Lord answered that request. And that, and that request, that raising of Lazarus, resolves the tension for us in two ways. First, it tells us that Jesus, Jesus shows us that he is truly one with the Father. He addresses God as Father, and he makes this plea to God the Father, and God the Father grants his request. And this affirms the blind man's statement in John chapter 9 when he's a, a, talking to the religious teachers. Right, you remember this. He says to them, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. 
if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. At that point, the blind man had no idea who healed him. All he knows is that he was healed. And he affirms that this man could do nothing if he was not sent from God. Jesus is one with the Father. And this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead shows that he is, in fact, one with the Father. Otherwise, then God would not have granted his request. And he would have let Lazarus die in vain. And the second answer to this persistent question of why Jesus allowed Lazarus to die is because it was for the glory of God. Verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I am glad that I was near so that you may believe. So the glory of God and the faith of his disciples kind of do different purposes, but I would say that they were one purpose. Because how is Jesus glorified? When people believe and follow him. And how is God glorified? When people believe in the Son and they follow him. So God is glorified through the Son when people believe in Jesus Christ and they follow him. And this miracle accomplished both. And so that tells us that the glory of God is central. And I don't really, I don't have time to really go there. But the glory of God, I mean, it's, it's not that the glory of God is, not, is apathetic or doesn't care about man's well-being. But it actually, actually, I think it does. Because when you realize that you have been created to bring glory to God, that you've been, that you've been created to worship the Lord, then you realize that your life serves a greater purpose than you can find in this earth. That it is not about the mundane, it's not about doing this or doing that, but essentially your life is about giving God the glory. And that in giving God the glory is where we find the most joy and happiness. It doesn't mean that we have a life of ease and comfort and peace, but it means that our joy doesn't rest in the things of this world, but it rests in Jesus Christ. And again, I don't have... This is another, it resolves the tension, but this, this is another tension that you might be wrestling with, even as we walk through this passage. And that tension might be, why do we suffer? As God's children who've been adopted by the Lord Jesus Christ, why do we suffer? Why do God's children suffer? Why do I go through this illness? Why do I have to experience this loss? Why does this happen to me? And I'm not going to, and in and, and one part, I, the answer is I don't know. I don't know why the Lord allows suffering to take place in your unique, in your personal life. But in another sense, that there, is, there are some answers. And rather than try to give you what I think might be those answers, I'm going to, there's a person who is much wiser than me who actually wrestled with this question as well. He's a Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter. He wrote this book called The Saints Everlasting Rest. And he asked this question, why do we suffer? Why do God's children suffer? And it's at least three reasons. Number one, to draw us nearer to God. There are ways 
that you would, be, that you would pursue the Lord through suffering that you never would when you were having a life of peace and comfort and tranquility. It's not that God wants you to suffer. It's not that God desires that or that God somehow has it in for you. But those are means for us to draw closer to the Father. Second, to prepare us fully to enjoy rest. Right? We know what, we know what rest is like. When you're working 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, you're eager to have that weekend to rest. If you've been working for decades upon decades, you're looking forward to retirement, having that time of rest where you are resting from your toils and labors for the past several decades. When we go through affliction and trials and hardship in our life, they're intended, they're intended to be a reminder to us that our rest doesn't come from this world that there is a better rest that is coming and it's intended to get us to long for that rest that the Lord promises us that is in fact coming where we can truly rest from our labors. And then lastly, I'm sorry, I know I'm going through this really quickly, but the last one is to keep us from mistaking earth for heaven. Richard Baxter says that one of the greatest mistakes that we can make is that we, is that we take earth for heaven, Right? Earth is not our heaven. Earth is not our permanent home. In fact, the scriptures describe us as sojourners and strangers in this land, that this isn't our permanent home. And sometimes, not sometimes, but I think whenever we go through trials and difficulties and hardships and suffering, that they're intended to remind us that we are sojourners in this world. And that just as you might be away from home for weeks at a time and you long, you get homesick, you want to be home, so these trials are intended to get us to, to long to be in our heavenly home. To help us to remember that we're not called to make earth our place, our ultimate place of security and peace and rest. Right? Nothing in the world can buy that. Absolute and perfect peace but that only comes through Jesus Christ. So don't mistake earth for heaven. Earth is not your home. And sometimes those trials, those trials are there to help you to remember, to, to, to get you to separate yourself from the earthly attachments and pleasures of this world and find your exceeding joy in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are the resurrection and the life. We thank you, Lord, because even though one day we will die physically, we will not die permanently. You guarantee to us immortality, life forever with you. God, may we remember those promises. Help us to look forward, to long for the day where we are spending eternity with Jesus Christ. And I pray that that, that longing and that hope would give us the strength we need for today, especially in seasons of hardship. You are the omnipotent God. 
and you orchestrate all things according to the counsel of your will for the, your glorious purposes and for the good of those who love you. So we pray that you will continue that good work in us until you bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.